this is how the birth of Jesus, the Nazareth, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. All right, I'm going to show the clicker works before I start this morning, make it a bit easier to get through the slides. It definitely rumbled, I felt that. <laughs> That's all right, as, as I wait to get this working, yes, today's passage is a bit of a Christmassy uh, feeling one. Uh, the word nativity does conjure all kinds of Christmas thoughts as well. What I might do is just prompt you to push the slides when we're ready. I think that might work. So I do love Christmas. Uh, you may have noticed that this does have a bit of a Christmassy vibe. It is generally a passage we do use around Christmas. And we will be in this kind of Christmas zone for the next couple of weeks as next week we look at the very famous wise man or the magi in chapter 2. But don't let all of this fool you, all right? We're not here to do a Christmas talk or a Christmas-type sermon because there's a lot more in today's passage and in next week's, as we'll soon see, that perhaps doesn't get conveyed around Christmas time that I do think is really worth looking at. Uh, at Christmas, we do tend to focus, though, on certain aspects of this. So I do want to highlight those to get them out of the way so that our heads aren't spinning thinking, but what about this, but what about that? So, for example, the virgin birth, that is something that we often focus on quite a lot at Christmas. We even had it in the Apostles' Creed earlier today, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So we do focus on that. Uh, we do focus sometimes on the theological aspect of things. So, for example, in this passage, we have these two amazing names given to Jesus. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, he was given the name Jesus, but also Emmanuel. And Jesus, when you bring that name down to its core, it's effectively this cry of help. It's God save me or the Lord saves, something along those lines. Uh, it's a very appropriate name to give to a baby who can't really say much more except cry out, God save. And that's the name given to our saviour. Uh, Emmanuel, the name is translated in the passage for us, means God with us. And so in this passage already, we're told uh, two things about Jesus. We're told who he is and what he does. That is both his mission in saving sinners, the name Jesus, and his person, God in the flesh, God with us. 
And all this is really, really good stuff. And I find all this quite nourishing. This is the type of doctrine that we can read and plumb the depths of and never really grow out of. But this morning, I want to focus on something a little bit different. Uh, I want to channel us in specifically on the two characters in this story, namely Mary, and in this case, especially Joseph. Because I think Joseph, he is the one that Matthew is highlighting for us in particular from the passage today. So I want to channel in on these two. Uh, I want to bring to life for you the utter seriousness and earth-shattering reality of what's contained in these few short verses. Uh, And I want to do this not only both relationally, between the tension that Mary and Joseph would have experienced, but also theologically, what this would have meant for us had things gone a different way. But before I do this, keep your Bibles open, and we are going to pray and ask for God's help as we unpack the passage for us this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful opportunity it is to meet together this morning. Uh, Lord, to be challenged by your word, to be stretched by your word. Father, please speak to us by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit as we meditate on it this morning. And this we pray all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Annie and I, uh, we do actually love nativities. Uh, The first nativity we ever owned as a couple was one we bought from Maya, believe it or not, one year. And the reason we bought this nativity is because it happened to be missing a couple of pieces, so it was on this significant discount. So we were there, we opened the box, and we were digging through it, and we saw, oh, there's a couple of wise men, that's fantastic. Uh, We dug further, out came some sheep and a shepherd. I thought, oh, excellent, you know, that's fantastic. We want that in the nativity. All the animals are some of my favourites. We had an angel, we had a star on top of the the thing that they were in, (laughs) the stable, even though the Bible doesn't tell us it's a stable. Um, you had little baby Jesus. You can't have a nativity without baby Jesus. And deep in the box, rumbling around, I thought, oh, there's something else in there. And we pulled out Mary as well. And we thought, perfect, that'll do. All the important bits are there, because we didn't particularly care all that much for poor little Joseph. Uh, unfortunately, though, I don't think uh, we're the only ones that think this way sometimes or feel this way. Uh, This attitude to Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, tends to be quite common. Uh, Joseph tends to get overlooked quite a bit. He's that, I don't know if you've seen the ad with a child standing in the rain with a soccer ball under his arm because his mum forgot to pick him up from practice that evening. Joseph is that guy. He's the guy that we forget about, the guy that fades into the background who everyone forgets. And if this is you, as it certainly was me... Firstly, don't feel too bad about this because I want to be your defence attorney here just for half a minute uh, and provide a reason as to why I think we have this attitude towards him. I think there are some valid reasons for this. Firstly, Joseph isn't the biological father of Jesus. right? So there's that. We tend to go, well, he's not that important. Secondly, the Bible doesn't really tell us a whole lot about Joseph. We don't really hear much about him. In fact, I want to throw this out to you. Do, do any of you know where Joseph's last appearance in the Gospels are? Anyone? Just shout it out. Jesus in the temple. Yes, excellent. So Luke chapter 2, uh, towards the end of the chapter, Jesus, as a roughly 12-year-old, he's in the temple. He's left there in Jerusalem by accident. And so the last thing we hear about Joseph, effectively, is how terrible of a father he is. And more than that, he's not even mentioned by name, which is probably why some of you hesitated. 
He's referred to in Luke 2 merely as your father from the lips of Mary. Now, in Luke, there is a reason that he's only referred to as a father, uh, because this sets up the, the scene for Jesus to provide the example of, actually, who is my father? I'm in this temple. I had to be here with my heavenly father. So it's there to make a pretty significant theological point. But the point I want to make is that poor Joseph barely gets any other mentions in the Bible. I mean, he's dead or at least gone a long time by the time we reach Jesus' public ministry. That, that's my assumption is he's not around because perhaps he passed on by that point. Um, we don't know. There's a few theories about it, but he's, he's very obviously absent from Jesus' public ministry well into his 30s. What we do know, though, about this man uh, is that he gets very little mention, and I think it's an absolute shame because what we have here in Matthew, especially in today's passage, is a story of a man who was extremely righteous. A man who, in the face of probably what was one of the hardest, most painful decisions of his life, decided to love and protect someone who had seemingly betrayed him. He decided to protect and love rather than lash out and accuse. And yet, and here's the real clincher, despite all of this, despite his kind of earthly righteousness in many ways, God actually had other plans for him. And what this demonstrates to us is that all of us, no matter how righteous we are or think we are, we are all in need of God's intervention in our lives, just as we'll soon see Joseph gets here. Now, if you are a note taker this morning, I have heard that there are some of you out there. Uh, I met one of the growth groups this week and you all pulled out your books when the passage came up. Uh, fantastic. What I've done, if I can get the slide working, is I've got some headings for you if you wanted to throw them in. So if we can go to the next slide for me, thanks. We have Mary's pregnancy leaves Joseph stuck between a rock and a hard place. So if we can go to the next slide as well. I'm going to pull up some of the Bible here. From verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. Literally, these words are, this is the genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, which should ring a few bells if you were here last week. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So the first thing we're told is that Mary, who is presumably from this conservative Jewish household, she's not married and she's found herself pregnant we find out that there is a bun in the oven through the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. And that's all good and well. Uh, as Christians, we sort of take this for granted. We know the story. Uh, this is central to the entire Christmas story. And Matthew even points out this is central to the fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah 7, which we see Matthew pointing us to if you look down in verse 23. Moreover, I think uh, theologically there is something amazing about the Holy Spirit here bringing to life Jesus literally in Mary's womb. And how even today, if we think about our own experience coming to Jesus, essentially this is what the Holy Spirit does do. It brings to Jesus to life inside of us. Only it's not literal, it's, it's a spiritual bringing Jesus to life. In other words, what, what we have here in narrative form with Mary, we see happening in a spiritual form in the rest of the New Testament all the way through to today. And I think, again, that is amazing. Uh, that is awesome. 
But you can bet your bottom dollar that is not what Joseph would have been thinking after hearing this news. And here's the one we're focusing on this morning. Now, it's hard to say, but what kind of things do you think would have been going through his head? Or what kind of things would go through your head if you'd heard this news? You know, you're, you're engaged and your fiancé is found out to be pregnant. I mean, there's this beautiful woman. Things are going along swimmingly in her engagement. Wedding plans have come a long way. Uh, you've booked the reception. You know that you're going to be having that lavender honey duck dinner, whatever it is you have at your weddings. You know, you're thinking about your future. Everything is great. You're talking about how many kids you'll probably have. You're enjoying your life effectively with the girl of your dreams. And then suddenly you're confronted with this fact that she's pregnant. And the twist of the knife is that she's pregnant with a baby that isn't yours. Your beloved fiancé is knocked up. And it probably doesn't help that her excuse to Joseph, can you imagine hearing this? Think of Joseph, and she's going, look, God did this. This, this is God. <laughs> it's a miracle. The problem is that by the time we reach Joseph, there's 400 years of silence from God. You know, how, how do you even begin processing this information? How does anyone begin to even grasp what to do in this sort of situation? In fact, to, to ratchet it up just slightly more, to get a, a better understanding of how significant this was in the first century, I think a, a brief explanation of Jewish engagement might be helpful here as well. So if we think about today, think about the commitment we need for an engagement in the 21st century, because today it's not a legal affair, uh, and it's fairly private in some respect. It's, it's mostly a personal thing. You just kind of choose to do it. And the hardest part about getting engaged these days is to talk to the father of the bride-to-be. And I think even then, that's kind of going out of fashion too. For the Jewish person who lived 2,000 years ago, it was very, very different. So to be engaged in Mary and Joseph's time, this was a public and a legal matter. So if someone was to call off the engagement for whatever reason. Uh, perhaps Joseph kept leaving the toilet seat up or my real bugbear, maybe Mary was squeezing toothpaste from the middle of the tube. These are, these are big deal breakers in some respect. But from, from an engagement perspective down then, you actually had to do this in writing. You couldn't just say, oh, I don't like these bad habits, I'm out of here. So effectively, to break off an engagement in the first century, you had the equivalence of a divorce. Papers had to be signed to the proper authorities. And so for all intents and purposes, engagement or even marriage was a much bigger deal in the first century than it is now. Now more of this, back then, at the Jewish betrothal period was effectively to be around 12 months. And interestingly, during that time, though, for whatever reasons, husband and wife or the engaged couple would call each other husband and wife. They kind of act a little bit like they're married. We see that in today's passage in verse 19. But don't be fooled by this, because despite this fact, despite the fact that Joseph was considered Mary's husband and, and their legal engagement period um, during that time, sorry, despite the fact they call these things during that time, they would actually stay separate to some degree. Sometimes they would stay in their parents' households. Sure as anything, they wouldn't consummate the marriage. They would have no sex until the time that the husband ceremoniously took the bride home after the wedding feast. 
And this 12-month engagement period, well, it had some very practical functions in this time. And the most obvious one is how long do we know it takes for a baby to be born? It takes about nine months from conception to birth, right? So unlike today, where I personally would recommend being engaged pretty much for the time it takes to prepare, plan a wedding and go ahead with it or thereabouts, in Jewish circles back in the first century, you were to be engaged for about a year uh, and for, to some degree for the wife to prove among other things, her faithfulness and her virginity. And so once we understand this, we begin to see sort of what's at stake here, having gathered everything that we've just learned, you can probably begin to imagine what may have been swirling through Joseph's mind when he found out during this engagement period that Mary had this little bun in the oven. I mean, he certainly knows it's not his, so naturally he'd be thinking, well, who's the father? Why is she lying to me? What's going on here? Her pregnancy had no explanation. That is, no explanation other than infidelity. Are you starting to see why on occasion it pays to kind of dive a little bit deeper into these passages that we we kind of skate over during Christmas? See, this, this tension is very often overlooked and overshadowed at Christmas time. And I think partly because it doesn't make a very encouraging or engaging Christmas story. We don't want to get to Christmas and talk about divorce and infidelity and all these really heavy topics. And so instead, what we choose to focus on is the cute little baby, focus on the nativity, the fluffy animals, the angels singing and all of that. But the reality is when we look at this square in the face, there is an extreme tension here. And while, yes, Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit, while we know that fact, because Matthew broke the fourth wall to tell us, Joseph, sure as anything, wouldn't have at this point, and he would have had no idea what had happened, no explanation except the betrayal of her trust. And so this is an extremely tense situation. This is an extremely embarrassing situation, Uh, not just for Joseph, but even for Mary too, where she's trying to explain what's going on. I can only imagine the amount of tension and miscommunication, the amount of doubt and mistrust there may have been between this miraculous conception and the birth. The very least, between the miraculous conception and the time that God spoke to Joseph, because that was a big turning point. But we're not there yet. Uh, We'll get to verse 20. We'll see how Joseph's mind gets changed almost overnight. But right now, I want us to marinate on this. I want us to to feel the difficulty of this situation, because we're going to ratchet it up one more notch. Are we doing okay? It's a bit of a heavy one this morning. Take a big breath in, breathe out. All right, we're going to go to the next point, if we can change the slides. Joseph's decision affects a whole lot more than just himself. So whether he knew it or not, Joseph's situation, whether to divorce Mary or not, unbeknownst to him, had far greater consequences for the rest of salvation history. You see, in order to grasp what was at stake here, I guess in what we'd call like the ultimate sense, uh, as we zoom out, we have to understand the importance of who is in Mary's womb at this point. So firstly, the genealogy of Jesus, which we looked at last week, uh, in that we see Jesus linked to the royal throne of David, to the promises given to David. We see his link going all the way back to the promises of Abraham. But all of that is contingent upon Joseph being Jesus' adoptive father. 
In other words, without Joseph on the scene, Jesus' claim to the throne of David starts to unravel. It begins to fall apart at the seams unless you can prove a connection through Mary's line. Without Joseph, in other words, Jesus would have had very little chance at a claim to the throne unless someone else had stepped in and adopted him themselves. And then failing this, the story of human salvation, or the story of our salvation, at least from our perspective, it begins to collapse. So in verse 19, if we didn't know the end of the story, we need to be sitting there kind of like we're on the edge of our seats. If we can flick to the next slide for me. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So we read Joseph, he was planning on divorcing Mary. Remember, a a separation from engagement, this had to be done in writing, which was effectively the equivalent of a legal divorce. But what should strike us most about this verse is that amazingly, incredibly, Joseph was planning to do this quietly. He didn't unleash an unbridled anger or grief onto Mary. He wasn't going to do this publicly, even though he had every right to do it this way. In fact, under a traditional Jewish law, he could have taken things to the next level. It wasn't very common in those days. In fact, I don't think we have many records of this, but if you were really, really a stickler for the law, he could have requested the death penalty for Mary. Now, although this practice wasn't common, if Joseph was this this perfect, righteous, law-fulfilling person, as we actually read in the verse up there. Had he held on to his grief, he could have essentially sought this much stricter punishment for Mary under their law. And I find this fairly incredible because if you didn't know the end of the story, verse 19, um, if you read this humanly speaking, you realise Joseph could have ended God's plan of salvation there and then by effectively killing God's Messiah before he'd even been born. That is, if he had flipped his lid at Mary's apparent infidelity. You see, when properly understood, this whole story needs to send shivers down our spine because we realise the enormity of what could have been. But thankfully, we know that we worship a God who organises all of history... We worship a God who is sovereign, who knows the beginning from the end, and in his providential care, he chose the right man to be engaged to Mary. You see, Joseph in verse 19, he was a righteous man. He was a man who was willing to do right by Mary and himself. He was a man who would find a solution that worked without resorting to any extreme measures like the death penalty. He was a man who didn't rely on his emotions to dictate how things should pan out. And the NIV, uh, it, it kind of obscures this a little bit. So it focuses on his legal righteousness. So you read the words there in the NIV that he was faithful to the law. And to some degree, what this is trying to say is that he's faithful to the law. He wants to divorce Mary in order to kind of exonerate himself. He's going, this isn't, this isn't me. I'm going to dust my hands. I'm going to divorce as I should. But I think faithful to the law is a bit of an over-translation because if Joseph really was faithful to the law, if he followed it to a T, then technically speaking, he really should have had Mary and little Jesus unborn in the womb, stoned to death. So 
So I feel like Matthew, while he is pointing at Joseph's legal righteousness, wanting to point to the fact that this guy wants to remain seen as righteous in the eyes of all his, his friends and his family and his Jewish brothers and sisters, he, in this, wants to also be seen, at least according to Matthew, as this morally righteous figure. He's a man who isn't necessarily this, this Pharisee or this religious zealot when it comes to the law, as you might interpret from the NIV. Uh, many other translations, if we can just flick to the next slide, they translate verse 19 as something like this, he was a righteous or a just and upright man. And so I think what Matthew is leaning us towards is a moral righteousness or a compassion. Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You have a letter of the law, but there's also a spirit of the law, a moral sense of the law. And I think Matthew, he highlights this by saying that his righteousness is connected to him not divorcing her per se, legally, but divorcing her quietly. This is a moral righteousness. And in this, moreover, we, we have this amazing act of self-restraint for us here. I've said this a few times, but I think it's worth saying again because we're all prone to this. Joseph didn't act on his deep feelings. He didn't take her to the cleaners. He didn't take her to the street corner to shame her. Rather, in this moment of deep confusion and deep mistrust, he chose to have compassion on Mary. He chose to divorce her quietly. Joseph demonstrates an enormous amount of love and care for this woman. And so by all accounts, I think it's safe to say that Joseph, he made a pretty good decision. If he followed through on this in some ways, this is him being a very upstanding guy, caught in a tough situation, not really knowing what to do, but he thought, you know what, I'm going to do this as best I can. But here's the amazing thing, as we're about to see, is that even this righteous man, even the most righteous of all of us, we still need God's intervention in our lives. And so, as note takers, I'm going to pop one final point up. We can flick to the next slide. The final point, God intervenes... Oh, next one, sorry. God intervenes and Joseph obeys. So Joseph, we read that he considers his options, he thinks things through, and he lands on this quiet divorce as the best way forward in verse 20, which I think for Joseph would have been an incredibly difficult decision to make. But then God steps in on the scene. And as God tends to do, he gives Joseph one more option to consider. A massive, last-minute change of plans. And here God speaks through an angel to Joseph in a dream. If we can go to the next slide, from verse 20 onwards. We read, But after he, Joseph, had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. It's the connection to David again being highlighted for us. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived from her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. God here lays down the facts for Joseph. 
he asserts that the child is indeed a miracle from God. A miracle, immaculate conception that was in fact predicted by Isaiah hundreds of years earlier. But more than this, the angel, he gives pretty solid reasons as to what this miracle meant for the rest of the world. So next slide for me. She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. As I've highlighted, that's what his name means. God saves, the Lord saves, or literally Yahweh saves. It's the name given to God in the Old Testament. And then Joseph, he wakes up. If we go to the next slide. What we read of him doing, I think, is absolutely amazing. Immediately, he does what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. Just like that. And this is astonishing. Let me explain why. Because by doing this, right, by staying the course now, by changing his mind and, and taking Mary eventually to be his wife, by giving full obedience and submission to God's kind of spoken law that he had in this dream, his legal righteousness in the eyes of everybody else was gone. Straight down the drain. In the eyes of his Jewish friends and family, he is now a filthy, rotten sinner. By obeying God in the sight of all those around him, in their eyes, Joseph was admitting, in inverted commas, admitting to a crime that he didn't actually commit that he and Mary had broken their betrothal vows and had slept together. By obeying God, he was partaking in Mary's shame. She was already in that zone. This this is a a heavy, heavy topic for her as well, which I think is great to study and it's probably worth giving another talk on at some point. But Joseph now, by continuing to be with her, takes on that shame himself. You know, I think what's amazing is that this is how God works. There's almost always a level of shame and scorn to carry in the eyes of the world for the one who faithfully follows God's commands and the one who did faithfully follow God's commands perfectly himself, Jesus. So what we see at the end here is that while Joseph had this good plan, while he could go up to God and say, look, Lord, here's what I've got in mind and I think it's great, God had a better plan for him. But as is often the case, his obedience to God came at a significant personal cost to himself. Now, we know that he didn't break any laws. We know that this was a miracle by the Holy Spirit. We even said it in the creed earlier. But hardly anyone else in his day would have. And so Joseph and Mary, to bring about the saviour of the world who would save his people from their sins, who would be the miracle of God literally coming to dwell with us as one of us, Emmanuel, Joseph and Mary had to endure the embarrassment of worldly shame, being completely misunderstood, scorned, mocked, belittled, gossiped about behind their backs, And in this case, voluntarily for Joseph, voluntarily giving up his status as a righteous man. There are some, no doubt, that would have seen this, probably family even, or very close friends, who would have seen this and thought he's out of his mind. But he did this all because of his love and obedience for his Lord. You see, faithfully following Jesus, it calls for this kind of shame-embracing level of obedience. 
a kind that does cost us personally to be unashamed of the gospel. And so as we wrap up uh, this morning, I want us to consider this. I want us to consider Joseph, who, by my estimates, was a far more godlier man than I think I am ever capable of being. He's a man who didn't take out his frustration on another person when he could have. He's a man who decided to love someone who at first glance had deeply, deeply wounded him. And yet even this righteous man needed God's grace in his life. Even this righteous man needed intervention from God in his life. But by doing this, by giving his full obedience and submission to God, he would have absolutely endured the judgment and the scorn and the shame of all those around him. And what this tells us in many senses is that following Jesus, for all of us, it will come at a cost. Being faithful to his commands, living a life that honours him, living a life that says no to sin, and a life that says yes to giving up things that we may once have pursued, to some degree is part and parcel of the course. Being a Christian whose life is consistent with their calling will mean enduring embarrassing and difficult situations at many times in our lives. It'll mean that people, uh, perhaps even immediate family, misunderstand you, mock you. Perhaps even other Christians don't quite understand your dedication to your Lord. And if this happens to you, well, you're in good company because you're there along with Joseph and many of the faithful all throughout biblical history and post. From the end of the closure of the canon of the scriptures all the way through today, there are many, many faithful Christians who have endured many, many shameful things throughout history, all for their Lord and Saviour. What I want to do very briefly, we're not going to get all this way in this term in Matthew, but I want us to skip forward to Matthew chapter 5. But can I ask us to do something slightly unusual? Can I get us to close our Bibles? And I'm going to read it to you. And I actually want you to listen. Listen carefully. We're going to go to the Sermon on the Mount, to some of these what we call Beatitudes. And I want you to hear carefully and think about Joseph's situation and our situation as Christians. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. It's not Joseph. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
All I can say for Joseph, who I think Matthew may have had in mind to some degree in thinking about this, who endured all kinds of shame by taking Mary to be his wife, pregnant outside the bounds of marriage in a conservative Jewish culture. For Mary, who certainly would have been insulted and misunderstood for her miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit, all I can say in light of all of this is amen. As for you, as you consider your own priorities here this morning, as you consider what it means to carry the gospel, especially to carry the gospel in a world that hates Jesus, in a world that thinks the very concept of a creator God is something to be laughed at, in a world that thinks that you're stupid and foolish and and at worst even a judgmental bigot simply for holding on to biblical truths that are no longer accepted in today's polite society. And things are only going to get harder and harder as time goes by. As we consider what it means to live for Jesus in a world like this, I want you to ask, in the quietness of your heart, are you willing to bear the burden of uninvited insult and embarrassment and public shame because of your faith in Jesus? Specifically closer to home, are you willing to say no to sins that you know you're committing that are corrupting your spiritual life? Are you willing to say no to the things that hinder your faith and instead replace those with with practices of public and, I should say, private godliness and obedience which buck the trends of the fleeting pleasures of the culture around you? Are you willing to endure all things for the sake of the one who died to save you from your sin? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage today. Father, we thank you that we have an example of a man, Joseph, who, though he was a righteous man, still needed you to step into his life to change him. And Lord, we thank you that through his obedience and Mary's obedience, taking on the shame of the world, that they brought about the birth of our Lord and Saviour. Lord, please help us as a church to faithfully submit to your word. Help us to live lives, both public and private, that honour you. Lord, help us to be challenged to endure the inevitable shame that comes from following you. And Lord, help us to know the full forgiveness we have in Christ because Jesus himself endured all the scorn and embarrassment and the shame of the cross for our sake and for your glory. Amen.